internet friends, and welcome back to Love-Hate Relationship, an opinionated podcast for opinionated people. I'm Andy Boel. And I'm Alex Ruiz, and as always, well, not as always, but um, as usual, we're here to brighten your day, anger your soul, and tell you how to live your lives in that order, and we're back, y'all. Terribly sorry for taking a little bit of time off. Andy, thank you so much for recording that apology that as of this recording, you've yet to record, but like... (laughs) You're most welcome. (laughs) But the one that like all of y'all heard, this is episode 40 and we, apart from being a few hours late a couple times, I think a day late once due to technical problems, we'd never missed an episode and then things got very, very hectic for you and then somewhat hectic for both of us and we missed one and we're sorry and um andy can testify to this i almost had a breakdown about it but i'm sure you were all lovely and understanding that we just needed a couple of extra weeks am i being a naughty baby daddy you're being a very naughty oh then maybe daddy should stop me Yes, because you are a lovely and devoted um, audience who understands that occasionally life gets in the way. Uh, a, a whole lot of life happened. There were, you know, multiple trips from our homes and business trips and a funeral, and it happens. And we're back, and that is all that matters. With the same. Love-hate relationships, sarcastic, lovely goodness that you've come to expect for 40 episodes now. Like, holy shit, Please don't leave us. Please don't leave us. (laughs) (laughs) When we started this podcast, I kind of just had a blithe, like, it's going to go on forever mentality. And I I still hold that. You know, at at the same time, we've done this for 40 episodes now. And that just really strikes me. And, and... Bi-weekly, mind you, so this has been a long time. Like, I I was just kind of idly thinking about, like, I can remember the day we were standing on a beach and we both were kind of like, let's do a podcast. But at the same time, I can't remember a time when recording with you was not, like, a standard thing I just did. So. Yeah, I mean, and we workshopped shit for a minute beforehand, but... You know, it's 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 been 22 months now because it's we're not bi-weekly, we're semi-monthly. There's an important distinction. Oh, true. Good point. Uh, because I am a prat, is what I am. Um, well, if we'd been bi-weekly, maybe uh, last time last week wouldn't have been the first episode we missed. So there's arguments uh, on both sides. Yeah, no, I, again, I designed this to be super sustainable so that it wouldn't be hard for us to keep our commitments. And right. I'm not going to harp on us for not keeping commitments because, frankly, it was the right thing to do. <laughs> and if we had tried to cram an episode together, we would probably be like, I don't know, sick or sad or trying to do it while in another state during a funeral or... Wow. Can you imagine recording a pod? Can you imagine recording a pod? Like, what if we recorded half the podcast at the funeral you went to, and then the other half at the wedding that we both went to? (sighs) Neither of us are two white guys who live in LA enough for that to be the way this works. That's true. (laughs) And plus, I need to dance at weddings. It's. 
It's a necessity. No like, lie. Like, people, if, if you've ever been to a wedding with Alex, you know. If you haven't been to a wedding with Alex, this beautiful man danced for, like, the entirety of the wedding. The entirety he was allowed to dance. And my my favorite tradition, my favorite wedding tradition is it's not a wedding till Alex breaks his pants. And This that time I did not rip the ass. Wedding. Yeah, you didn't rip I, the ass. Nah, I see. I rented fancy pants. I rented like a fancy suit, which had the like side tightener things instead of a belt, and they worked fine. But as I was tightening them uh, after a little dancing, uh, just a little bit too, it was not long in. I snapped one of the little enclosure parts, so one of the things was just kind of dangling. So I just tied it on up into a terrible little knot, and I continued to dance. You wore a belt over your pants, sir. Like, there weren't any loops to put it through. Our sweet friend Chris gave me a belt that was too big for me. So not only did I have to wear it without any belt loops, I also had to turn it around, like... So that the buckle was facing inward, just so that I could get that little extra half inch, and it would actually stay on and do something. It was a good time. (laughs) It was a lovely wedding. Congratulations to Matt and Kaylee. We love you. That's right. Uh, Should we get started? Um, I'm ready to, yeah, you know? It's um, Okay, I mean, you got a big love here. Like, a big one. A like big, just a big turgid love right here. So um, I think I think it's worthwhile to get started um, sh- I'll, I'll, here, and I'll even tee you up, um, folks. This is love hate relationship. After a few minutes of banter at the top, uh, we go into our topics. One of us brings to the table something we dearly love, and this is one that I know Andy's been holding on to for a good long while. Uh, One of us talks about something we hate. Uh, This one's more recent for me. And then we take a relationship question, sometimes from you, sometimes from the internet. And we do our very best to give our terribly unqualified advice. So, Andy, by all means, um, what's the term? Make it so, number one? You know, you got it right. I'm very proud of you. Okay. Noted (laughs) sci-fi fantasy, not give a shitter. You got it right. <laughs> sh- we will we will talk about how little I know about this particular one, but um, the floor is yours, dear boy. Yeah, so, I mean, this, this is a big, big love. This is an important love for me, but this is like, I was sitting here trying to be like, okay, what's the next thing? What's the next love? What's the next topic? And it just kind of smacked me upside the head with how obviously it had to be Star Trek. time of recording um the most recent spin-off show star trek picard came out last week and i've seen it and the first episode was delightful and it just brought an entire wave of like joy and nostalgia to me to inspire me to talk about why i love the star trek franchise as a whole okay. so you know star trek is probably one of those well-known science fiction properties of all time. There's there's always been like a nerd feud, a nerd war between Trekkies and Star Wars fans. 
And then, you know, off in the corner, you've got people saying Babylon 5 or Battlestar Galactica, and everyone laughs and points at them. But in, uh. like, in the pantheon of science fiction properties, Star Trek is, depending on who you ask, either first or second place along with Star Wars. The original Which series. Minor dumb. Yes, indeed. Um, the original series premiered in 1966 and has evolved into a decades-long property with, to date, seven spin-off series, 14 movies, countless other media licenses, parodies, and pop culture moments. And for the record, Star Trek came out 11 years before Star Wars and has more films in the series and so many more hours put to screen of television that it's not even funny so suck it lucas i don't care how good the mandalorian is this boy up here pretending that george lucas had anything to do with the mandalorian that's a good point (laughs) suck it disney (laughs) wait does does disney own cbs yet uh not yet cbs no they don't abc there you go all right Suck it, Disney. Suck it long and suck it hard. (laughs) Um, In case the audience has any confusion, I very much more lean on the Trekkie side of that argument. And, you know, I believe there's room to admit that there doesn't need to be an argument at all. But, I mean, I do this show, so obviously I enjoy being combative. And I just... I do take pleasure where I can in in touting Star Trek over Star Wars because in all fairness, it's happened only a few times like in my lifetime that I've been able to seriously do that. Sure. Yeah. I have some counterpoints, but I'll keep them to myself until you've said more. Okay. Um, In order, for anyone who is unfamiliar with the show, the Star Trek series have been the original series, which was the one with Kirk and Spock, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy. The Next Generation, which was Picard, Worf, and Data. That's where you get your Patrick Stewart, your Brent Spiner, your Whoopi Goldberg in a sci-fi show, which is so weird to think of nowadays, but she was great in it. Uh, she just got invited back for Picard. She did. did see that? I did see that. He went on The View to personally ask her back, and I'm for it. Um, Hell yeah. After that came Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which is the one with no, but the, the one that nobody remembers, but is also like secretly the best one and had Avery Brooks and Andrew Robinson and Nana Vizdor and so many amazing actors. Um, Star Trek Voyager, which was the one that people remember as having the female captain and also Robert Picardo. Um, Star Trek Enterprise, which is the worst one, and I have nothing fun to say about it. Star Trek Discovery, which is the new one, uh, which has um, what's-her-face from The Walking Dead and Jason Isaacs and Anthony frickin' Rapp from Rent and is, is very interesting. And Star Trek Picard, which premiered uh, eight days ago as of time of recording, uh, as well as two separate cartoons. You know, we got the Shatner movies, the Stewart movies, and then the Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto reboot movies. And that is like from 8,000 feet up the bird's eye view of the Star Trek franchise. Okay. Have we gotten anywhere for counterpoints yet? I mean, if you're looking for me to compare Star Trek and Star Wars, 
the entire argument can be summed up as Star Trek is highfalutin sci-fi and Star Wars is space fantasy for children. Yeah. I just happen to like space fantasy for children a lot. I I completely agree with that, and that is a completely valid point. And, you know, I don't think anyone has characterized the argument in that way because that makes a lot of sense to me. If you watch Star Trek, the original series, like I have with my dad, it Which is feels... the one that I have actually seen more, the most of, was oh, the original series. Okay. Yeah. Um, because I know you, I'm curious, was this in English or was this like... <laughs> subtitled in no it was in english it okay. was in english uh, i was it was reruns like on tv in the evenings i never like sat down and watched star trek all the way through and any of the series i have seen more original trilogy um, original here here's me going original trilogy because i'm a star wars kid i've seen most i've seen the original series the most i've seen a little bit of the next generation an even smaller amount of uh, Deep Space Nine and Voyager and nothing of the rest of them. And okay. I've only seen, like, I have saw the first two movies, like the first Star Trek movie, and then I think Wrath of Khan is two. Yes, that is correct. Um, and then I've seen the first two of the reboots, and I've seen no none of the others. Not even the one with the whales. Admiral, there'll be whales here. You you yeah you're not so so people like to say that the one with the whales is secretly the best Star Trek movie, and people are wrong. The best <laughs> Star Trek movie is Wrath of Khan. Well, yeah, and the Ricardo only Montalban, please. <laughs> and the only other acceptable answer is the Undiscovered Country, which is if Star Trek was doing the Cold War and is just utterly delightful. Um, if anyone has a dissenting opinion about a comedy in which we go back in time and save whales, you know what my Twitter handle is. Come at me. Mm. Uh, but what I'm I was so sorry. Say, I feel like I've derailed you. So please no, continue. No, it, it's totally fine. What I was going to say, like if you watch the original series, Star Trek, like a lot of the ship stuff feels very much like a submarine movie or TV show. Like, sure. down to the point of, like, you would have Kirk calling to fire a torpedo, and then the camera would cut to the torpedo room, and you literally see somebody loading a torpedo, and then another guy's, like, aiming and fires it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's very much reminiscent and based off of old military TV shows, whereas Star Wars, you're absolutely right, I think The Simpsons said it best, it's westerns and samurai movies mixed together in space. Yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. George Lucas loved, George Lucas wanted to make Flash Gordon, couldn't get the rights to Flash Gordon, so he's like, okay, I'm going to do like, uh, I'm, I'm going to take these like Western movies that I really like and these adventure serials, uh, mix them up with these Kurosawa samurai movies that I love so much. Uh, and, you know, let's get the guy who came up with the hero's journey to hang out on set so that he can, like, script direct. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Um, it's space fantasy for children. Yeah. And, and you know, from, from a financial standpoint, um, I can't argue with Star Wars. There's just 
no leg to stand on. I think even once you factor in all of the TV shows, like, there's no Roddenberry Ranch is where I'm going with this. Like, like Star Wars, by and large, from a financial standpoint, if nothing else, has been a much more popular, profitable venture than Star Trek. And there used to be a Star Trek casino in Vegas. Like... Jesus. Which I, I've been to. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to belabor the point about Star Wars versus Star Trek. I really don't. Because this isn't about Star Wars. I will just say... Um, I really do think that the odds that that the you know battle between the two is um, how should I put this dumb and manufactured <laughs> like it's it's they're number one they're not for the same audiences no like can small children watch original series Star Trek yeah I don't know how much they're gonna get but you know they could watch it whereas any small children can watch Star Wars um. And the idea, I think, is just because a certain stereotype of person likes each of these things, and they both have star in the title, it just became a popular meme in culture to be like, it's Star Wars versus Star Trek. Just like later on, it became Star Wars versus Lord of the Rings when Lord of the Rings got really, really huge. Sure, yeah. You know, it's it's an easy narrative, and frankly... Um, people whose entire personalities are the things that they like to watch um, probably need to chill a bit. It's a very and nice way. Stop of pretending it. that the well, like, and I mean, I've never, I've never seen a single episode <laughs> of Battlestar Galactica. I've heard great things about it, um, but I've never seen it. I, and I've never seen Babylon Five really. I watched like half of an episode of Babylon Five once, and I had no idea what was going on, and I changed the channel. Yeah. Like. <laughs> it's it's I don't I'm not stressing out about it, but there are people who are like I don't know. It's not it's not a personality to like a thing. Yeah, that's all I'm gonna say. No, absolutely. Um, that said, let's get back to this thing that ho- totally helped form your psyche. I mean, it it <laughs> yeah yeah. After everything we just said, it it truly did. I mean, no no lie. One of my very first memories as a kid is sitting on the floor of my living room watching like season one next generation. Um, my dad before DVDs were even a thing and you couldn't really like even buy like a box set of classic issues. My dad would record every episode and then like just rewatch them at will. Um, obviously my father and I grew up watching different incarnations of the show because that's how sure. time works. Yeah. Um, but we both grew up watching different incarnations of the show and it's been an incredibly pr- it's been an incredibly present and influential aspect of my life. And and part of the reason I love Star Trek, I, I truly do, I always have to this day, is I feel like the ethos of the show was so inspiring. You know, Gene Roddenberry in the 60s wanted to create a future where we were a united people you know the height of the cold war the height of well maybe not the height because it seems like it's never really gone away but you know one of the high points of racial tension in the u.s like Star Trek the original series presented an incredibly diverse multiracial cast. 
You know, you had Lieutenant Sulu, who was Japanese, and this is in spitting distance memory of World War II. You had Chekhov, who was Russian while we're in the middle of the Cold War. And, of course, you had Lieutenant Uhura, Nichelle Nichols, who was one of the single most prominent African-American characters on TV at the time. This show gave us the first interracial kiss on network television. And there's a beauty to that. And there's an importance to that that even even in the even in the day, like people knew. Nichelle Nichols was very vocally going to quit Star Trek because she figured she was only there in a token way. She was only there as like a joke. Her character wasn't written very well. And Martin Luther King personally convinced her to stay on the show because mm-hmm. in his own words, you need to understand there aren't people who look like us on TV right now. So we cannot lose you. There is there was an importance there that is so important, I think. Yeah. And people watching Nichelle Nichols saw a person who looked of these were people who were taught a very particular idea of what a black woman was, and they see her completely acting counter to every one of those lessons. And You know, if even a handful of them get enough out of that, even just, you know, it laying groundwork psychologically that it makes a difference and makes them interact with someone differently or at least give them another chance, that's important, you know? And I'm going to make another point about uh, Next Generation and, and what it presented as Utopia, but before I lose the thread entirely, like, modern science fiction... modern science fiction basically it feels like anything since like 2000 has felt a need to reflect a grittiness of human society to the point where Mm -hmm. this utopia roddenberry presented really feels almost impossible one of my favorite shows on tv right now is a science fiction show called the expanse oye beltalada listen up this is your captain. You could kind of think of it as like a step-grandson to Star Trek. Um, and one of the overwhelming major plot points of The Expanse is that, like, you have Earth, you have Mars, and there's all the people who live in space, and they all hate each other, and none of them can get along together. So it's just like the idea of a united human species, humanity as a a single concept. It, it almost feels quaint that we ever thought that we could achieve that. And that makes me kind of sad, but it, it just really shows like what a what a what a groundbreakingly powerful vision Roddenberry had and it, it it makes me sad to think that it's never going to happen, but it, it, that's because it makes me so happy, the idea of it being able to happen and, and everybody, you know, getting along. Um, you know, my point about The Next Generation was it presented a utopia where, like, money was obsolete. Humanity wanted for nothing. And so we're able to instead focus on, you know, peaceful exploration of the unknown. And that's another aspect that just seems entirely implausible now 30 years after next gen premiered the concept that we could ever unite enough 
even even if in real life we created something like replicator technology and we could take light photons and and convert them into matter of whatever we want like if if we had the capacity to become a post scarcity a post scarcity society I've become cynical and aware enough of how the world works to never think that such a thing would just be handed out for free, you know? (laughs) I mean, there's... I hate to keep bringing it back to nihilism. (laughs) uh, Do you? (laughs) Yeah, no, but but there is... There's definitely a conceit of absurdism here. The idea that, you know, there's... Okay, if life is an eternal struggle and you don't know what to struggle against, you know, it's... There's no inherent meaning. For a lot of people, meaning is survival. That's the only thing they ha- they worry about because that's the only thing they can worry about. And once you're past that point and you're faced with, you know, the radical freedom that you are capable of anything uh, and you don't need for anything, you make your own purpose. And the conceit at the center of Star Trek seems to be, okay, when faced with, you know, the question of the absurd... Um, here's making a purpose that's good. And as, you know, as, as a, as a nihilist and as an absurdist who tries to do that, I see something really aspirational and beautiful in that. Like, there is a potency to that. There is also room for that in philosophy. Maybe there isn't so much room for that in contemporary pop culture, because you're right, we do need everything including our Star Trek reboots, to be gritty and have a, ha, have a certain wash of, you know, blanched out color as we contemplate the destruction of the planet Vulcan. But, <laughs> you know, like, even still, this is the society you've got. So, eh. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I feel like there's room for that. Uh, or if there isn't, there should Well, that be. makes me really happy that you see it that way and continue to argue it that way. I, 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 I agree very much. It's not that I don't. Just it, it, it speaks to why this is a good thing. You know? To, to go back to your point about how, like, the um, conflict between Star Trek and Star Wars is manufactured and probably unnecessary. I think it it is absolutely unnecessary because, you know, one of the things about Star Wars, it's not a hopeful glance at a possible future. It is set in a galaxy far, far away. None of the characters in Star Wars are technically human. Like, I don't know what Luke Skywalker is, I guess he's a. I guess he's tattoo a, a <laughs> but he's not human. Uh, technically, he is descended from because uh, well, Anakin's uh, from Tatooine. Half, half, half Tatooine and half Naboo. Yes, right. So uh, <laughs> my my point is that like I don't know I don't know what the thesis statement of Star Wars is. I know what the thesis statement of Star Trek at least was at at a certain point. It was this, like, here's what the future could be. And it it just goes back to, like, like you can pull different things out of these two medium. They don't have to be 
the two franchises that butt heads and there's no room in your heart for either. And honestly, I, I think most people really don't see it that way, but you know, the radicals often anymore. speak the loudest. Yeah. Oh, there was a time, Yeah, but I don't think that time is now. I think, I think in a post Marvel landscape, everyone's okay to be into whatever nerdy ass shit they want. Oh, that's a good point. Like, it's okay if you went to go see a Marvel movie, then you went to go see um, whatever that third J.J. Uh, Abrams Star Trek movie was, and then you go home and watch the new Game of Thrones. Sure. Or Game of Thrones in general. Like, that's... And, and read a Harry Potter book as you're falling asleep. All of these things can coexist pretty comfortably now. And And for clarification, that would be Star Trek Beyond which is the one where Captain Kirk uses the Beastie Boys to kill the alien threat at the end. And I just need you okay. to know that. <laughs> so th- See, the problem is the Beastie Boys make Star Trek references in their songs. It's cyclical. I know. I love it. <laughs> Time is a flat circle, Alex. Um, so it's a Jeremy Baramy is what it is. <laughs> so the other reason I love the show is more often than not, it is, you know, it is very enjoyable and compelling. Several of the series deal with this core question of what it is to be human, uh, you know, often examined through the lens of a main character. You know, we had Spock who was the quaint, bizarre alien with alien emotions and and you know poked fun at all of our human tendencies and also just so nobody comes at me yes spock was half human um yeah in in next generation you had data the android who all he wanted was to be this this pinocchio real boy but he you know he was going to learn bit by bit over the course of seven years like how to be human or at least as close as he could get Star Trek Voyager had the doctor who was a holographic computer program, emergency medical system who didn't have a name. Oh man. <laughs> you just excited me when you said the doctor was in Star oh, Trek. I know. Like, <laughs> just brought it. Oh, well, and there you go. There's another piece of fandom. There's another piece of nerdy ass shit you can throw on, on the, on this, pile. which is the only one I can think of that is still going today and is older than Star Trek. Like, like sidebar, Star Trek premiered in '66. Doctor Who originally premiered uh, originally premiered in 1963. So good on him. Yes, but yes, but it also like it was off for I think it I think the right original series ended in like '92. They did a TV movie in '96, then it didn't start up again until 2004. So there were gaps there. People think that this series has gone on continuously. It has not. That's true. And, and it, there were gaps. In fairness, Star Trek had that same gap. I think the the amount of time between when Enterprise was canceled before we got Discovery was like 14 years, 10, 12, 14 years or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. But, so you had Doctor who was um, Robert Picardo. Literally, that was his name. And and just you, you have these characters that try to find out what it is to be human. And it, it, I always enjoyed that exploration in sci-fi. Um, you know, earlier mm-hmm. I called Deep Space Nine the best series, not only because it was, 
Um, but you know, it played out as this giant cold war metaphor, a second one that wasn't like just a movie with different alien races playing the different countries. Um, it was also one of the very first network television shows to start using long form season spanning stories instead of serialized bottle episodes, which mm-hmm. is like one of the most important things I think you can, you can say about like, this was the proto format or at least one of like the pioneers of the only way that any serious drama is done now nowadays, you know, except for cop shows, we don't get serialized drama hour long shows anymore. And deep space nine was one of the first things to really like, okay, we're going to have an arc that spans an entire season. We're going to have arcs that span the entire show. And we break out bit by bit by bit. And that is just so important to me. I wouldn't get some of my favorite modern shows like Battlestar Galactica and the expanse if deep space nine and to be fair, Babylon five, which people always said was a deep space nine knockoff, um, didn't do those ground laying storytelling techniques. Sure. So, you know, I haven't really kept up with star Trek discovery. Uh, I, I gave it a chance and you really can feel the difference of a decade plus in, in television creation techniques. You know, there's also the fact that CBS threw a bunch of like movie budget, at this show that had never had that sort of budget anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't have a whole hell of a lot to say about discovery, but you know, I am enraptured with star Trek Picard. I am enraptured with Patrick Stewart himself and have always loved the man so dearly. He himself will privately be his own separate love at some point on this show. But the day that Patrick Stewart dies, I'm gonna have to fly down there and wrap you in a. You probably are, because I'm gonna like I'm gonna fucking take off work and just lie on my couch and watch Next Gen reruns for probably the day. It's gonna be a bad time. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but you know, I, I shan't think of such upsetting things yet. What I shall think of is you know, 54 years after. It started 54 years after we heard space, the final frontier for the first time, star Trek seems to be on an upswing. And that makes me very, very happy. I I think it is an important show both for what it did for, you know, racial relations at the time and just presenting this, this peaceful future to what it did for the way we make television as a whole. It is a, important thing and i love it dearly space the final frontier well i love that andrew richard i love that something like this made you so happy i i've loved many a star trek fan in my time and i you know i have some minor criticisms um hey everybody gene roddenberry was a sexual harasser just yes fair 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 Uh, fair yes I will not yeah. argue. I will not defend the man <laughs> as much as I will just defend his creative dream. I get it. And I mean, you know, Lucille Ball is part of the reason why Star Trek even happened. Look up that story if you haven't. Um, but I 
honestly, what I take from this, apart from its personal connection to you, is really this discussion of a utopia. Um, you know, people, the, the, okay, what's the criticism you always get for, um, coming up with stories about Superman, Andy? How do you make Superman interesting? Yeah, you have to, like, break him because as a character, Superman is is too powerful. And the fact that Superman's yeah. whole core conceit is that he's the best and always finds a way to win doesn't work. Yeah. So what you always have to do is uh, take, this, take, take this utopian ubermensch and put him in situations where he can't win. How can't he win? Because the world doesn't work that way. Because he has to fail. Because he has to let people down. Because he can hear every bit of suffering in the world and he can't fix them all. It's not possible. The cool thing about Star Trek is it's it's a utopia. It is post-scarcity. None of these people have to worry about survival. None of these people have to stress over whether or not they will, you know, make it through to the next episode because they're going to starve or because you know, it's not it's not a poverty show. It's not a war show really. But where's the where's the conflict? The conflict is they have chosen to explore and learn and that sometimes puts you in danger. And that sometimes, you know, forces you to grapple with the deepest and darkest of the psyche. And those are compelling stories in a utopian setting. And, you know, I like a gritty reboot as much as the next guy, but I think there, I really think there's room for this. I really think there's room for a utopian vision. I really think there's room for conflicts that come from a place that isn't just bare bones violence and survival i think those are interesting stories and i think star trek gives an opportunity to do that so i i even though i'm not a huge fan i do like it i do respect it and i appreciate you bringing it in here one thing you appreciate um makes it worth it for me i will i will talk star trek to death like i have to make sure to temper like how much of a big damn Star Trek nerd I am. So if anybody wants to engage me and talk about the finer points of Ferengi culture or Borg assimilation, uh, uh, hit me up. I, I, I can talk about this for a long ass time, but I want to get to the hate. (laughs) Okay. Oh dear. And you, and you know what? You you even like you teed me up nicely when you were talking about the uh the humanity question versus the robot question. Yes. So, <laughs> um let's let's move it forward because this is one where I think I'm going to have to do a fair amount of explanation, but um I'm into it. I'm intrigued and I and I think you I think you'll at least see where I'm coming from. So, Andrew, as always, I like to start with a question. And so let me begin by asking you this, uh, because I think it's a nice intro using something that I think most people already understand, at least to an extent. Uh, You, Andy, are you familiar with auto-tune? Yes. (laughs) Okay. 
Obviously, if you're aware of auto-tune, you're aware of the debate about auto-tune, whether or not it's, you know, a perfectly acceptable thing, whether or not it's it's ruining music. Where do you fall on this spectrum? I've gone... And if possible, can you explain what auto-tune is? Like, would you mind doing that as I well? I will try. Um, I've gone back and forth on it because, you know, it seemed like... It seemed like when auto-tune first really hit the scene at least what most people would think of it hitting the scene back in like 2007 8 ish like it just took pop music by storm auto-tune in my knowledge is the process of digitally perfecting enhancing tuning um, somebody's voice and you can change the pitch and, you know, basically just, we take somebody's raw, real human voice and we throw all these processors and edit, um, filters over it so that it sounds technically perfect, but technically perfect is such a distinguishable and in some cases weird thing to hear like and and i feel like if it if it happened a lot in anything other than like pop and and like rap and r&b for a moment i really didn't notice it so much but it seemed like just for a second it was so prevalent there i i remember not hating it and then being really sick of it just because it was everywhere until the point where it became a meme of itself and you've got ti doing i'm on a boat entirely auto-tuned um uh that was t-pain sir t-pain my mistake i got the t i knew that was in there (laughs) it's t-pain t-pain um, so yeah, I mean, I, I've gone back and forth. It really seems like it's gone away or at least it, it kind of like it, it, it had its moment. It took its dick out at a party and everyone got a little like, Oh my God. And, and then it put its overcoat back on and people were like, okay, you can stay at the party auto tune. It seems that way. Doesn't yeah. it? Um, no, that's, that's a perfect explanation. And so you, where you land on the debate has, it's shifted. Where, where are you like right now? What do you think about autotune? Um, I guess I'm. It's okay to say you don't know either. Like, or you're undecided. Well, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm ambivalent. Like I, I can appreciate it, but also I don't hear it an overwhelming amount. So it doesn't bother me. Okay, totally fair. Um, your explanation is pretty much on point. It's um, it's using software to pitch vocals. Simple as that. Um, if I'm going to sit here and just, like, sing something with no reference notes, I'm not a singer, I'm the uh, and, and, like, you sit there with someone either who has perfect pitch or very good relative pitch, they can tell you exactly what notes I would be particularly sharp or flat on, and if it were in the software, if it were in this recording station that we're both using right now to record, and you had access to that software, you could pitch it onto the note. Uh, depending on how much you move that pitch, if you're only moving it a little bit, you probably won't notice that. Uh, which is why I tell you, when you say that um, you really haven't heard that much autotune, I promise you, you have. It's just you haven't heard it being overused. Sure. Um, 
And and the thing is, uh, I bring up autotune for a particular reason. Autotune is not my topic, um, but I think autotune is something that a lot of people understand as, you know, in, in the music production business, it's referred to affectionately as turd polishing. Uh, it's, it's, it's a way where if you're using it subtly, you can kind of fix things up a little bit. Some artists, like a T-Pain, use it deliberately as a, as a studio tool, as a way to go, okay, I am deliberately going for this weird computerized sound. Kanye West does this a lot. Um, I have a lot of criticisms of Kanye West, but I really think some of the things he's done with pitch software are interesting. Uh, and he's not trying to pretend that it's anything but auto-tuned vocals. He's he's deliberately using the software. He's making it very obvious. I don't mind auto-tune being used for stuff like that. I'm not a big fan of it using being used for just general correction, but it's not something that breaks my heart. What does break my heart is uh, what I consider the rhythmic equivalent of auto-tune, and it's my topic, which is quantization or quantized drumming. Uh, now, Andy, did you know what quantized drumming was before I sent you these notes? I did not, know. Okay. Did you understand it after I sent the notes? Because I'm not sure how explicit my notes were. <laughs> no, yeah, I, under I understood it. Like, I didn't know what it was, but... You you told me you were going to talk about quantization, and I took a wild stab at what it could be, and I, I mostly had it on the mark. And then after your notes, it's like, yeah, okay, I, I get it. Yeah, yeah. So quantization uh, is essentially the process by which those same producers, who may or may not be using auto-tune to pitch vocals, essentially use their software to edit drum patterns so that they conform to a certain metronomic grid. Um, what do I mean by this? In, in, the, in the vision that we all have of, say, um, a four-piece band, guitar, drums, bass, vocals, our vision of that is these four, three or four musicians all get in a studio, and if they're not all playing live together, um, you have each of them record their parts individually, and then you use whatever, you know, editing software or tape deck, if you're going real old school, um, to layer them all together. And then your producer, you know, twists their little sound dude knobs and pitches this part up or makes this part a little louder and gets the mix just right. Like, that's the when Rage Against the Machine goes in and records a track, that's what we all picture. Yeah. Um, Rage Against the Machine very famously writing on all of their albums, all sounds created using only vocals, guitar, bass, and drums. Like, that's something they emphasize with all of their albums. Every song they do, it's just those four elements. So, um, the idea is if you've got a drummer, they're just going to do the drumming. And then it's pretty standard for, uh, or it was back in the old days, you'd start with the drums so that everyone else recording their parts could listen to the drums and be on the same beat. Because that's the purpose of a drummer in a band. Yeah, right. <laughs> Quantizing 
is where you might have, there's two ways to do it. Either you have your drummer do their entire thing. Maybe they have like a metronome playing in their headphones so they can keep time. You have your drummer do it. And then you go in to the software and pull up what's called a grid. Um, I see a grid on the stuff that I'm recording right now. It basically just divides up time in a visual medium as I can see my vocal track going. And it shows me, okay, here's the one second mark. Here's the tenth of a second. Here's the twentieth of a second. So on and so forth. And with the software, you can actually take your drum hits where they peak and drag them over so that they hit on exactly certain parts of the grid. Because when a human being plays a drum, there's going to be little syncopations. There's going to be little inaccuracies to perfection. Right. That was the thing I was going to say to really just solidify it in anyone's brain. Like, you can be... A, a human drummer can be able to keep time professionally to the point where they're, you know, in a band and they do this thing, but there's always going to be like just microsecond variations. And this is the process of correcting that in post, just like with auto tune, you make it technically perfect, but like a robot's technically perfect sounds entirely distinguishable and to some people bad compared to human being perfect yeah exactly um so that's one way to do quantized drumming the other way uh is where they'll record a drummer and they will literally just record like a bar like a boom boom and just that part and instead of having the drummer play that for the three minutes or four minutes of the song, they'll take just that part, stick it in, and copy-paste it down the grid. Which essentially turns the drummer into a drum machine. Um, You know, that exact process, that's actually completely natural to uh, a lot of hip-hop and electronic music. And I actually don't have a problem with that. Like, in those genres, I, I get it. You're using drum machines. Drum machines, That this is how they work. Um, and I'm cool with that. That's fine. That's, that's indicative of that genre. What I specifically mean, um, and I'll link this video in the description. There's a music producer who has a great YouTube channel uh, all about music production and music theory and a whole bunch of cool shit. His name is Rick Beato. He's based out of Atlanta, Georgia. Um... He did a whole video uh, specifically about the Jonas Brothers song, Sucker, uh, which is a cool song. I actually really like the song. But he was responding to a musicologist who was writing in the New York Times that wrote about that song. And this, this dude specifically writes about this breakdown section in the song, Sucker, uh, and he calls it, quote, a stupefyingly funky drum breakdown. <laughs> Which, you know, whatever. It's, it's, if you listen to it, if you listen to that breakdown part, it sounds very much like it's trying to do that kind of James Brownish drum break that you had in like 70s funk and soul. I'm not mad at the Jonas Brothers for putting that in a song. Um, but Beato rightly points out you can't call that funky because it's quantized. Mm, okay. Like they got, they got a, they got a professional studio drummer in the studio to record that his his he's credited in the song 
But if but Beato actually takes the track, puts it into his music producer software, and shows how it lines up in the grid. And in the video that uh, that again I'm going to link in this sh- in the show notes, um, he takes the Jonas Brothers song that that breakdown, and he straight up puts a music time a music timer, a thing that says how many beats per minute uh, a sound is. He point he puts that up to that song, and it's like perfect. Okay, it's exactly this number of BPM. And then he takes um, the song "Funky Drummer," which is a James Brown tune, and they show and and he does the exact same thing with that track. That one's not quantized. That was recorded in the seventies. At most, maybe that drummer was playing with a metronome. Probably not. Actually, he was probably doing it on his own. Um, but the BPMs are all over the place. But if you put the two together, and if you're someone who's even remotely musically inclined or rhythmically inclined, you know, a lot of laymen probably aren't going to tell the difference. And and that's fine. I might be old man yelling at cloud right now. But a human drummer in a band is so essential to the, to the conceit of feel to the conceit of being able to lock in even, you know? I, I recently I recently sat in uh, a rehearsal with a local uh, funk and soul cover band here in Asheville, and I was playing bass, and the drummer is an acquaintance of mine, you know? We, we haven't hung out a lot, but he's, he's getting to be a little bit of a friend, even outside of this context. And there were some moments with him and I where we were, as good, as drum and bass, were really, really able to lock in. And you don't get that from perfection. You get that from two humans who are feeling a very particular sense of musical back and forth. But I guarantee you, if I held that same music BPM thing to his drum kit while he was playing, it would also be all over the place. Those syncopations are essential to human drumming, to feel. And, you know, quantization is Dirty Little Secret. It's everywhere, <laughs> including in the song Dirty Little Secret. Another Beato video I know, he he breaks down that song a little bit and he shows the drums and he's like, these are quantized drums. I don't understand why. All American Rejects have a great drummer who's perfectly capable of playing this, but for some reason they decided to quantize this shit and basically turn the drums into a fucking yeah, drum machine. Yeah, I, I can relate that to a, a film thing. Um, there is a habit where, like, if you're doing a scene and you want the camera to be just a little, like just a little swayy, like for a modern movie, half of the time they'll just stick it on a cameraman's shoulders and, and let his natural movement account for that. The other half of the time they film it completely static and then they digitally move the scene around a little bit so that it feels like it's on somebody's shoulder. And I always see that and I always just think to myself, why don't you just put it on their shoulder if you know that's what you want to do and a lot of the time it feels like you get these producers you get these creatives and you give them free reign and people can't help themselves but try to be like but i want it to be perfect 
And I, I think that's a little bit of what's going on here. Yeah, absolutely. And I just... I am always very hesitant about, like, fetishizing the old ways of doing anything. Like, I'm very, very hesitant to ever do that because I'm I'm a big proponent sure. of innovating and, and trying new shit and trying interesting stuff. And I'm always of two minds because I always admire the people who are taking technology and doing really cool and interesting things with it. Um, I'm thinking very specifically about the production in uh, the last uh, Childish Gambino album, which was an album I did not love. I did not love that album. It was not a favorite of mine of his, but I have to admit, in terms of just sheer interesting studio work, using technology, trying out new and innovative and interesting things. That sure. album was fucking fascinating. And so cool. And 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 sure, at the end of the day, I might just be a guitar, bass, drums, and vocals guy. When it comes to hip-hop, I might just be, hey, give me bass, drums, keys, and a rapper. Like, or or even, or better yet, Find me two turntables and a great sample and just rock them back and forth. I, I, I find a beauty in that simplicity. I started playing music to punk rock records. And I will always have that. But I have a lot of respect for innovation. That said, this doesn't feel like innovation when you're just using your technology to strip the human elements out of this shit. And Let me ask you something. I, I don't know. I And I feel like your answer to this me. will settle whether or not you're an old man yelling at clouds. Magic! One of the first <laughs> things I keep or one of the things I keep coming back to in my head is the idea that in some ways there is a convenience factor to making music digitally. I think about a friend of mine who is in a a Mm. folk metal band and she will often build the drum beats in a program. They're played live. Their recording Mm. is live, but like to they're they're for, for once I'm going to sit here and, and say the, it, it, it might just be cheaper to be able to get a computer and a bit of programming software and make your own music that way rather than, in this specific example, like get a drum kit and go through all of that. Is there... If, if somebody does that, makes it digitally, and decides not to have it be perfect to the robot's perfection. Does that make it better for you? If somebody legitimately doesn't have access, I mean, fuck, look at me. Um, If I ever wanted to write and record my own stuff, I mean, okay, I, I could write a song. I've written songs in the past. 
Um, I can play guitars. I can play drums. I can play keys. Um, using keys, I can also um, use samples to play some other instrumentation. Um, I'm hes- I would be hesitant to do a lot of that. I'm not going to do a sure. sax solo on my keyboard, but I might add some string sections or something. Um, but I'm not a drummer. I don't know how to play drums. Uh, I can do a basic 4-4 or 3-4, but I also don't have access to a drum kit, and I live in an apartment complex. If I wanted to write music with drums, I would have to use the drum programs, either the drum programs in my keyboard or the drum program in uh, my software and build a drum pattern. And it's automatically going to be quantized because the only way I could avoid that would be for me to manually go in and be like, okay, this perfect to the grid beat, I'm going to just like use my mouse and move this snare like a a 64th of a beat early and i'm going to move this hi hats i mean i'm going to move this hi hat cymbal crash just like a little bit late these things that would happen normally and that's bullshit that would sound terrible that would yeah. never work in any practical way um okay. in a situation like that i would understand again like even even hip-hop and edm people like i'm not mad that the drums in a hip-hop song that's built with a drum machine are quantized they have to be quantized because they're built with machines that's fine with me my problem is why the hell did the producer of sucker bring in a professional drummer to play a drum beat and then quantize the beat why is it that you've got rock bands that have actual fucking drummers and you either use a drum machine or you quantize the stuff that they're actually playing? Like, why? What does that serve other than make your pop music, make your instru- make your guitar-based backbeat music feel sterile and digital like there's no excuse for that sure. all-american reject song to have it, quantized I mean, drums shit the live version can't be that if for no other reason no no and i have sat down and watched an all-american rejects concert dvd before and i will proudly admit that and their drummer is great and he's not quantized. He's playing all that shit with a proper yeah. kit. So I don't have a solution on this. More than anything, I think my goal is I want people to be aware of this. There were campaigns about auto-tune right. back in the day, you know? Um, right now, I feel like there's a, there's a fairly vocal movement going on about... Um, the four chords in music. Um, Axis of Awesome did that video, the four chord song. Um, oh, I'm intimately familiar, familiar with this. With that this is one of the first internet videos I think I ever okay. like truly watched. Like that is peak like 2005. Yeah. So Axis of Awesome did their song, um, which is all about the one five six four chord progression, and it's become it's becoming increasingly known to a lot of people that popular music this has become just 
a chord progression used throughout. Um, it, interestingly enough, a lot of Nashville songwriters have talked pretty openly that they're under such pressure because they get hired for these sessions and they're like, okay, I got to pump out like two songs a day in like two weeks so that I have shit that I can present to somebody and maybe get mm -hmm. stuff on an album. And for them, you know, their money comes from the publishing rights. Okay, how do I pump out a song quickly that I know will sound good? Well, I know for a fact that 1564 and variations of that do well and sell records. So I'm going to keep coming back to that and just change my lyrics and my vocal melodies. And yeah. that's what we're left with. So that's starting to get more attention these days. But I don't hear people who aren't music producers talking about quantized drums in and granted some of that is there's not as much you know guitar based backbeat drum kit based music as much you know the the pop music of the day is hip-hop and you know some r&b infused pop like okay that's fine I'm, I'm not mad about that either but it doesn't change the fact that a lot of people are trying to create drum kit style percussion and they're fucking quantizing and i just want people to be aware of it sure. your music doesn't have the same feel anymore because producers are doing shit that they don't need to do because there are plenty of great studio drummers who can come in and do great feel and there's no reason for them to be doing this with everything so my two cents i don't know you tell me andy am i an old man yelling at a cloud um, I really want to call you one, but no, no, you're not. I was going to make a joke about how you, you're merely advocating that you want musicians to do it the old fashioned way with, you know, blood, sweat, and a hangover and a shit ton of cocaine. Um, but eh, I'll take a sober musician, but the, the I'm with I, you. I want to get to yeah. our question because I, I really love it, but. The the thing that you just made me think of is like, there's no reason you can't do the same thing with guitar strums. Like you can go into that same program and you can get it so that you're strumming perfectly on the beat measure, whatever. And I imagine all the only reason we haven't done that yet is because, as you say, guitar is less popular right now than like the drum vocal key combo, but I don't want all of my music to be made sure. by a robot or even by one single person. Um, nine inch nails, notwithstanding. So I, I, I get you, man. I don't, I don't think you're yelling at a cloud here. I'll, I'll let you know yeah. when you are. Okay. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, we've got a we've got a I nice really question do. here. Uh, do you want to read it or shall I? You 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 generously supplied it. Okay. I, I should be okay, asking you, you. Would you like to read it? No no no. You read it. Uh, this one's from relationships.txt. Yes. So you know, we'll link to that one if you want to see people's replies. But, yeah. So uh, Andrew, this by week, all means, take it our away. question on love hate relationship. My girlfriend of eight months' birthday present to me was a tattoo of my name and face on her back. I don't really know what to say here, but I'll try my best. And that's written out. That is not me. 
I've been together with my girlfriend. We'll call her Kim for a little over eight months now. We don't live together, but she only lives about five minute walk from me. I would have described the relationship before this week as pretty slow. Neither of us really wanted any big commitments. Yet, outside of date nights, Netflix, and the occasional hookup, the relationship has been pretty laid back. That was until last weekend. My birthday was Saturday, and my brother came into town, and we were going to have this small party. I invited Kim, obviously, and she seemed really excited. Kim claimed she had spent over a month thinking about what to get me after I supervised her, after I surprised her with a pretty expensive present for her birthday. I should have picked up something was off when she avoided seeing me face to face for about a week before the party, but I put that down to other things. Well, Saturday comes, and we're having a party with about nine people. Kim made a big show about getting everyone together because she wanted to give me her present in front of everyone. This is where things get crazy. For my birthday present, Kim got a massive tattoo of me on her back. Of my face. Underneath my face, there's text saying, Mine forever. The silence was deafening. It didn't help that the tattoo was not even half done. I was not ready for this, and I had to go in the other room just to breathe. During this time, my brother and Kim got into a small fight, as my brother called her crazy multiple times. Most of the people were gone by the time I was even able to leave my room, including Kim. Me and her have been fighting nonstop ever since, too. She is claiming that I completely disrespected her in front of everyone, and is now saying that I'm, quote, some fuckboy who doesn't love her at all, end quote. She has refused to talk to me until I and my brother apologize for embarrassing and disrespecting her in front of everyone. This is completely out of my comfort zone, and I have no clue what to do. My brother has been telling me just to break up with her and ignore her, but I just can't do that. Before Saturday, I did feel a spark with her. I did like her a lot, but this is just way too much. Any advice on what I should do can and will be appreciated. And so we we have a name. It is not our question asker's name, but this hit me kind of immediately. Oh my god! What am I gonna do, KP? Yeah, right. Because doesn't that make kind of sense? I mean, I was I was sitting here getting ready to like reference the girl with the dragon tattoo, like try and remember what the names of the characters in that were. But I like yours so much better. I would never slander Elizabeth Slander uh, like that, but it really seemed, I mean, the fact that he put it, it, he gave his girlfriend the pseudonym, the pseudonym Kim. And after that, I was like, done. I know what All it right, is. I'm for it. So this is, this is a weird alternate reality version of Ron Stoppable and Kim Possible. I mean, this is because they give their ages as 23 and 25 respectively this is after kim isn't saving the world anymore she kind of settled down she kind of settled for ron but also like she's gone nuts with boredom okay you should know that ron and that might be a spoiler for my answer <laughs> you, you you should know that ron and kim ended up together at the end of that series spoilers but um okay you read so should i open up I I feel like you should, yeah. Ron. Honey. Baby, sweetie pie. In your last paragraph, you say that your brother has been telling you to just break up with her and ignore her. And quote, you just can't do that. That 
is a very stupid sentence. Honey, you can absolutely do that. I don't know what's convinced you that you can't. I know that you say that you, like, were in great shape a week ago. Um, but you are not dealing with a stable person. There is such a thing as, like, I don't know what neuro, um, divergences Kim is dealing with. But the fact that she got this tattoo and doesn't understand why it's upsetting or problematic is worrisome and makes me question her grasp of reality, of human interaction, of healthy relationship dynamics... And a little bit whether or not she is a danger to herself or others. Ron, if you break up with her and ignore her, like, I don't think the advice you're asking shouldn't be, like, what you should do, you can't break up with her. It should be, you should break up with her, and you should be asking for advice on how to protect yourself. Yes. Like, physically. Because this is, I, I, I don't, I don't like to get into crazy women stereotypes. I don't think they're valid. And I think that they're a real problem in society. But you've been dating for the last eight months a person who is unwell. That's how I'm going to politely phrase it. And you should leave. You should extricate yourself from the situation as safely as possible. You should safeguard your own well-being bodily. Um, then do some emotional work on yourself. And get back out there, champ. But leave. Run. Get away. Andrew? So I'm going to say this in the somewhat more problematic way. But Ron, you stuck your dick in prison. <laughs> And you never stick your dick in crazy. I get it. Crazy's fun. But crazy gets uh, a tattoo of your face on her back. Like, here's... Okay, here's my thing. I, I If everything that has been presented as true, and there is not some crucial detail missing, there is not some gross, like, mischaracterization of the relationship, the fact that... She spent a month thinking about it and giant tattoo professing an eternity together is where she landed. Mm, I don't know, Ron. Like also this is less than a year long relationship. And while in and of itself there is nothing wrong with that having a short relationship and then you know having a a major life-changing event like that i generally lean on it's a better idea to spend a good year and a half minimum really getting to know each other 
My line is 30. I'm like, if you are under the age of 30, you should not even be talking about forever until you've been together for at least, at least one year. And that one year is if you also spent like several years knowing each other in other, like if you were friends for several years, (laughs) dated for a year. And then just started talking about, talking about maybe making a deeper commitment like getting engaged or married. That would make sense to me. But you're both under 30. And what the fuck, son? Mine forever? Yeah, that's the other part of it. You, you, and, and, and Ron, you, like, we're, we're telling you like Kim's ever going to hear this. Probably not. Um but just just public in general, you don't get a relationship tattoo. If you do get a relationship tattoo, you get something that is so different and personal. Like like my wife and I know what our relationship tattoo is going to be. It's going to be an 8-bit Koopa on me, like Mario, and an 8-bit Goomba on her. Because those are our like personal pet names for each other. So that even if something happens... It's that okay. Then I've just got a Mario tattoo, which I'm comfortable with. You never get a highly personal romantic tattoo, even if you're positive you're gonna stay together forever. And man, Kim is possible. Kim is positive that you are hers forever. Sidebar like the thing is, can can I just say uh, real quick? I used to know a married couple. Both of their first initials were the letter J. So after they got married, they got little J's on their wrists, um, which was cute. After they got divorced, she covered hers up with a black and red heart. And he kept the J, quote, as a reminder of his own mistakes. That's why you don't get relationship tattoos <laughs> kim kim has again if it, assuming this is as red and i don't see any reason why this guy would totally like lie like kim has had this inside of her since you met her this has just been brewing and bubbling up to the surface the fact that the chain of events is reveal giant tattoo of my boyfriend's face on my back to which he becomes immediately and drastically uncomfortable and leaves. And he disrespected me. That's not a good time. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to agree with Alex here and I'm going to agree with your brother. Your brother has like what's best for you in his heart. This relationship needs to end. For, I think, the first time I'm sitting here being like, there is no salvaging this with Kim. Because at best, this tattoo is going to be a constant reminder of this crazy thing that your life partner did. Like... That is the best case scenario. You work through the fighting. You apologize for disrespecting her. You two move on. You're never going to be able to look at her back again. And and Kim is just screwed, period. Because, like, I don't know. You're going to have to get a hell of a cover-up unless you keep it as, like, this weird revenge tattoo. Yeah, I, I, 
And so. I feel the need to point out that this might sound like a question of degrees, but I feel like it's important. This is not like you guys. This is not like um, you know you guys met at like a bus stop corner and. You know, her surprise to you was that she got, like, a little tiny tattoo of, like, the street intersection signs. Like, that would be cute. Like, if... Yeah, I dare say that's cute. Yeah, if you're gonna, if you're gonna be the type of couple that gets tattoos of each other, like... If she did that, when you two have only been together for eight months, it would be weird still. That's, like, that's still a very big huge thing to do um when you've only been together for less than a year but like if she just got like a little tattoo like that on like her forearm or something that would be a little much that that would be kind of weird and i'd be kind of put off by it but she got your head on her back in 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 and apparent according to you it is massive it is your entire face in a massive tattoo on her back with the words mine forever this is not just about a tattoo that seems a little rushed this is about yeah. an act of just sheer horror and she's of the mindset that not only is this a good act, but it was a good idea to surprise you with it on your birthday in front of your loved ones. And not just you, but everyone around you would be into it. It's not just that she misperceived what you would like. She misperceived what human beings would find romantic. Yeah, this is a gross misinterpretation of where your relationship was at by her part. Because, okay, date night and a little nookie on the side, um, great. Even if you, even if that's your dynamic for like five years, you don't get this tattoo. This was your dynamic for eight months and what she thought would make you the happiest in the world. The grand gesture was this tattoo. And then it's your fault. She embarrassed herself in front of this group of strangers, like run, run, keep running. Like, honestly, the only thing you, you sit here and say that you can't break up with her. Like you gotta break up with her. If you're sitting here being like this, I can't break up with her because she might murder me. I understand your logic. Um, knowing nothing about your living situation. I, I hesitantly say, figure out a way to move so that she's not five minutes walking distance away and don't let her know where. Um, but if that is not possible, then maybe carry around some mace. And I seriously mean that because this does not seem like a woman who is above, like, hurting you for breaking up with her. And that is my serious bit of advice is break up with her now and carry some mace, Ron. Leave weapons. 
That's two sentences. Not just a chipperito and a nacho. Just, just that's two sentences. Two, two, two sentences. Leave. Period. Weapons. Period. <laughs> best, yeah. best of luck to you, Ron. I'll be posting this in the relationships.txt thread. Um, if you want to reach out to us, like, let us know how this goes. Um. Part two of this is seriously, how do I protect myself? We we that we can get into that. We can get you there. Yeah. I mean, hell, if you wanna if you track this down and you email us, like, we'll call you in. We wanna know. We Yeah. Ugh. Best of luck to you, sweet, sweet boy. Um That's right, Ron. <laughs> oh god, Andrew. If if any of you want to call us in you know i don't think we've actually said that like we are totally fine with like in person in the moment like get a three-way phone call working and we'll find some way to record you as well we these don't have to be like written out questions this can be on the fly if that is more helpful to you in your situation and whether you want those live or in person you can send those relationship questions to love hate relationship podcast at gmail.com or hit us up in our dms on twitter we promise we'll read them. absolutely you can subscribe to us on apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, stitcher spotify youtube or even tune in radio hey mom um you were very mad at me when I got my first tattoo um uh, but thankfully it was just a little thing on my chest and it wasn't all this um yeah we would also love it if you reviewed us on any and or all of those and uh like andy said you can dm us directly or you can tweet us directly at lhr pod that's lhr pod uh with your questions and follow us to keep up with new episodes that's absolutely right um i i divulged i'm a bit of a sci-fi nerd and another way i divulged that is by having a a cult movie podcast with the incomparable Stephanie Johnson, uh, where we watch the occasional sci-fi. We've we've gotten through Brazil, Akira, Ghost in the Shell, all that good stuff. Um, and so that is cult fiction. You can find it at Cult Fiction Cast uh, everywhere that Alex just mentioned. Yeah. And if you want to follow me personally, Andy Bowell, I am JovoCop two one one three on Twitter. At some point, I'm going to get you to explain that Twitter handle. Um, in the meantime, I'm at A underscore X underscore R-U-I-Z on both Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for listening, y'all. Uh, it's good to be back. Very good to be back. We will try not to have to take a break like that again. But who the hell knows? Maybe we'll have a breakdown at some point. Um, impeachment is still going on. In the meantime, <laughs> tell your enemies. <laughs> <laughs>